The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, a cordial welcome to all of you. This is the research seminar of the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies at Trinity College Dublin in cooperation with the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Center. My name is Dr. Clemens Rudner and I'm uh, the school's director of research and I'm gonna be your host tonight. For today, we have a renowned speaker, the Australian global historian, Professor Dirk Moses, and this is why we made an evening lecture out of our usual afternoon seminar talks. With his paper, The German Catechism, uh, which appeared last year in a, in a Swiss periodical of history, he has sparked a heated debate in Germany and worldwide, including philosopher Jürgen Habermas and other prominent respondents, a discussion to which journalists have already referred to as the second Streit. I don't know whether you're familiar with the term Streit. It means something like the historian's dispute and was a public debate in the late 1980s uh, in West Germany between conservative and left-wing academics and other intellectuals about how to incorporate Nazi Germany and in particular Holocaust commemoration into German historiography and into the public memory of Germany. In his talk, uh, Professor Moses will give us a survey of the recent debate, its arguments and reactions, followed by a question and answer session hosted by me, for which I would like you to use the Q&A function, the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen once the talk has ended. My request would be that you don't write a full mini essay there, but rather short and pointed question uh, questions due to constraints of time. Just a few words about Dirk Moses. Uh, he is a Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor of Global Human Rights History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His first book, German Intellectuals and the Nazi Past uh, of 2007, reconstructed post-war West German debates about its Republican democracy and coming to terms with the legacy of national socialism. His second book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression uh, from 2021, so rather recent, is a genealogy of the genocide concept in connection with concepts of law and for example, racism. Furthermore, Dick Moses is the senior editor of the Journal of Genocide Research and is working on a book entitled Genocides and the Terror of History. Dear Dirk, we are all excited to have you over, at least virtually, with your cutting edge research in the fields of genocide and memory studies, even if some of your claims have been received controversially. I think Ireland and Trinity in particular are a good neutral stage showing that it is academic best practice not to close our eyes to the big questions of our day and to discuss them fairly, properly, and thoroughly, even in cases where we don't agree. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for your attention, and the floor is yours, Dirk. 
Okay, thanks very much for the uh, generous introduction and of course for the for the invitation, Clemens. I'm delighted to be with you this afternoon, my time here in North Carolina, um, early evening, your time in Dublin. I'm sorry that we can't all be there in person together to discuss these things. I uh, recall previous visits to your fair city, though at the other university down the road. Um, and uh, though, of course, I have colleagues at TCD and um, hope that we can do so next time. Now, I was very happy to accept Clemens's cordial invitation to participate in this August series because it's been almost 12 months since I wrote the little catechism essay, which I published after a month's delay in the Swiss online history journal Geschichte der Gegenwart in German and English in late May last year. Much has transpired since then, certainly enough to warrant taking stock of the debate, or rather, as I observe, intersecting debates. Even in 40 minutes, though, I'll then be able to gloss the major elements. So I look forward to the discussion when we can treat them in greater depth where necessary. Now, what are these various elements sometimes subsumed under the term catechism debate? The most common one, which often stands in for them all, concerns public memory, whether the Holocaust is unique, and whether thus the current fracas is a rerun of the historian's dispute from the mid-1980s, as Clemens already indicated. The conventional thinking is that it is indeed a rerun of that debate. There is a veritable obsession with this question, in fact, although it was only one of the five articles of the faith of the catechism, and I'll return to this fixation shortly. The second element is historical, but increasingly political whether the Nazi regime was an empire or a racial nation state, and whether its crimes can be related to previous German imperial history, especially in Africa before the First World War. Historians have been debating these questions for decades. They are not new, although journalists were blissfully unaware of them until now, making out as if they've uncovered a scandal. The question of whether the Federal Republic owes the Herero people an apology and reparations for genocide in the same way as it does to Jews for the Holocaust is not new either. Herero advocates have been saying so for decades as well. But again, they've been largely ignored by the public and journalists until recently. The third issue is outright political, and it concerns domestic and foreign policy. To what extent are migrants, especially from the Middle East, obliged to internalize the public culture of Holocaust memory in order to assume German citizenship? And should this requirement extend to Germany's principal foreign policy commitment, Israel's security, no less, that in 2008, Chancellor Merkel declared to be German's, Germany's reason of state, its Staatsraison, or one of its Staatsraisons. Fourthly, there is the question of post-colonial studies. Is it threatening this reason of state and the political class's Leitkultur, with its focus on enduring structures of coloniality and race, rather than the singular fixation on anti-Semitism. The mainstream answer is that, yes, it is. It is such a threat, akin to the Islamo-Gashism hysteria in France, in which post-colonial thinking is denounced as an imported North American virus, undermining European and or Western civilization. Fifth and finally is the question of free speech or freedom of expression, what the Germans called Meinungsfreiheit. I argued that it is imperiled today in Germany by the enforcement of speech codes 
on the just mentioned questions by state officials backed by the mainstream press acting as if in concert. Their view is that they are safeguarding the public memory culture that Germans have so laboriously developed since the 1980s. Now, these are all important issues and not unique to Germany. Catechisms of various sorts exist in all countries, their content varying accordingly. But in Western ones, at least, the status of the Holocaust and Israel as an ally of the relationship as well between racism and anti-Semitism in the context of increasingly diverse populations and the global war on terror and of the limits of the sayable are remarkably common. Consider how the Amnesty International report on apartheid in Israel and Palestine was disposed of by initial condemnation and then studied silence, waiting for the news cycle to move attention to other issues so that the report would not disturb the basic coordinates of foreign policy and official memory. And yet those of us who worked on and have lived in Germany appreciate the visceral force of these questions there. Their experience is existential and the debate about them is commensurately intense, indeed emotional and uncompromising. It's participants intent on destroying others according to a Schmittian friend enemy logic. This goes as much for scholars, mainly historians, who enter the public fray as for historians for whom quick hot takes are their bread and butter. I mentioned the charged nature of the German debate about the catechism to distinguish it from the English language one that unfolded largely in the new fascism syllabus online blog early summer last year, thanks to the adroit curation of Jennifer Evans at Carleton University in Canada. Although not without its polemics and sometimes based on a poor understanding of the situation in Germany today, the debate featured a diversity of voices from academics mainly based outside Germany who addressed the gamut of issues pertaining to memory culture there today. And taken together, it was a pretty productive exchange. By contrast, the subsequent belated German debate, which continues to this day with almost weekly articles, has been marked by vituperation, denunciation, and structural racism. It contrasts markedly in quality, not only from the English language debate, which I just mentioned, but also from the historian's debate nearly 40 years ago that Clemens mentioned, in which, its hard words aside, scholars and well-informed journalists thrashed out the issues in long newspaper essays that remain worth reading today. I cut my teeth on them as a master's and doctoral student starting exactly 30 years ago, which led to the subject of my PhD thesis on German intellectuals in the Nazi past. In my presentation today, I present a counterintuitive argument about this particular structural transformation of the German public sphere. By counterintuitive, I mean that my argument charts the decline of German liberalism in its hour of victory, when the triumph of the civil society driven critical approach to history that figures like Jürgen Habermas entreated in the 80s and 90s became an article of state policy or Verstaatlicht, as Germans would say, with the consequent official entrenchment of a particular interpretation of the German past and present. This transformation of the public sphere led to the problems I highlighted in the catechism piece, namely, as I wrote, and now I quote myself, the moral hubris leading to the remarkable situation of Gentile Germans lecturing American and Israeli Jews with accusing fingers, raised fingers, 
about the correct forms of remembrance and loyalty to Israel, end of quote. And again, as I wrote, high priests wanting to conduct debate like an inquisition, denouncing heresy and ritually encounting the catechism as a substitute for argumentation, end of quotation. Let it not be forgotten why I felt, felt compelled to write over write this piece over a weekend in April last year. It was because of mounting concern I observed with the witch hunt against the Cameroonian theorist Akhil Mbembe the year before, and then the trashing of Michael Rothberg's book on multidirectional memory when it appeared in German translation in late 2020. These were just the latest in a series of targeted cancellations of people who strayed from official memory. Whether Peter Schäfer's forced resignation from the Berlin Jewish Museum in 2019, or in the Weissenseer Kunsthochschule's cancellation of a program by Israeli students dedicated to what they called unlearning Zionism. As might be expected, German liberals had been sounding the toxin about these events and these uh, tendencies uh, already, and also about the Bundestag's semi criminalization of the Palestinian BDS movement. More significantly, leaders of German cultural institutions initiated what they call the Weltoffenheit Initiative in December 2020 to insist on freedom of expression and resist this chilling effect on public discourse. So despite claims by German journalists that I was starting a new debate, it was clear to me that I was entering a fraught and fractious field of discourse. And also that no one was listening to those raising the alarm about the cancellation mechanism in German public culture. For example, the 240 Jewish and Israeli scholars who signed a letter of support for Peter Schäfer made no impact. And the signatories of the Weltoffenheit Initiative and also the Jerusalem Declaration of Anti-Semitism were hauled over the coals in much of the German press. When the head of the Einstein Forum, the philosopher Susan Neumann, whose article is uh, headlined on the top left, quite accurately pointed out in the Berliner Zeitung that today Hannah Arendt would be cancelled for her critical views on Israel and was then lectured by a non-Jewish editor of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung in the article on the right, I saw yet another instance not only of an increasing liberalism in German public culture, but also the perverted endpoint of German memory culture when German Gentiles, the children and grandchildren of the Nazi generation, as I also, uh, sorry, instruct Jews about Jewish identity and memory, as I have already mentioned. Note the title of Susan Nyman's article, who was allowed to speak for Jews. In view of these circumstances, I decided it was time to state matters clearly and directly in order to reveal exactly what was going on. That task entailed delineating the articles of faith in Germany, which I call the catechism, which cannot be questioned on pain of banishment. Going beyond the unoriginal observation that taboos exist in any public culture, I endeavored to briefly account for them historically, how and why one post-national catechism replaced the nationalist one in the 1990s, for instance, and further, how it functioned to externalize or displace German anti-Semitism onto Arab and Muslim Germans and migrants. Finally, I ventured on the basis of the academic literature to suggest that they are contingent, that is these articles of faith, are contingent and partial interpretations rather than the revealed truth or facts 
as their believers take them to be. To be sure, I did not think anyone would take much notice of what I thought, after all, just an obscure Australian academic in the American South. But for the reader who sought an unsparing insider outsider perspective, or for posterity, or simply to get down on paper the increasing dismay I experienced as a sort of catharsis for me personally, I felt it, in person, I felt it important to lay bare the enabling structures of the new German political religion. So what is the catechism? Well, for those of you who've not read the essay, I'll just read out the five articles of faith. There are five of them. The first, the Holocaust is unique because it was the, the unlimited extermination of Jews for the sake of extermination itself, distinguished from the limited and pragmatic aims of other genocides. It is the first time in history that a state had set out to destroy people solely on ideological grounds. The second article is this. The Holocaust was thus a civilizationsbruch, a civilizational rupture, and the moral foundation or refoundation of the nation, if not of Europe, as some have suggested. Thirdly, Germany thus has a special relationship to Jews in Germany and a special loyalty to Israel. As Merkel said, uh, Israel's security is part of Germany's reason of state, its Staatsraison. Fourthly, anti-Semitism is a distinct prejudice and a distinctly German one, at least in the form of what Charles Friedlander calls redemptive anti-Semitism, and it can't be confused with racism. Fifthly, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Now, these articles of faith I suggested constituted a catechism, a Christian rather than Jewish connotated political religion, guarded by a priestly class of journalists, politicians, and some academics who screened the public speech of the population whose increasing diversity worried them. Yes, of course, I realized that such a framing was going to be provocative because these people think of themselves as liberal Aufklärer, as lighteners, not as priests, who are defending the ramparts of reason and civilization against the barbarian hordes who Merkel had led into the country in 2015 and against AFD voters. And to round out the picture, also against the few post-colonial studies academics who made it into an otherwise very white German academy. But you know, it's not as if religious motifs are foreign to the German discussion of memory. Anyone who cares to listen cannot fail to miss the religious and biblical themes saturating discussion of the Nazi past in Germany. Words like Erbsünde, inherited sin, Keinsmal, the mark of Cain that the Holocaust Memorial is supposed to embody and pariah nation circulate in a field of discourse with an ensemble of other biblical and religious terms about the German past, taboo, heresy, orthodoxy, sacrality, thorn in the flesh, stachel im Fleisch, for example, is an article by Hans Ulrich Wehler in der Zeit from 1996 about the Goldhagen debate, which is like a thorn in the flesh, referring, of course, to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore on his crucifixion. Now, not for nothing do journalists habitually resort to theological rhetoric in depicting the relationship between Germans and their past. Only by remembering the Holocaust with contrition, wrote one, and I quote, can Germans again find their spiritual balance, seelisches Gleichgewicht, unquote. And in 1984, Michael Schneider, the writer, wrote that, between the guilty and their offspring remains a fixed and inexplicable, imprescriptible guilt 
comparable to biblical guilt within the framework of history. These are just a few minor examples of many I could adduce. Historians, I wrote in my 2007 book on German intellectuals and the Nazi past, are dumb witnesses to a culture, a society, a people wrangling with itself about the criminality of its past if they rest content with narrating the sequence of historical controversies, such as those that have dotted the German public sphere since the war. I think they need to be alive to the subterranean biblical themes flowing beneath the surface froth of events, linking past and present through the continuity of German political emotions that are necessarily collective and therefore sensitive to anxieties about accusations of collected, collective inherited sin. What's more, I discovered after my piece was published that exactly a year before, on the 23rd of May 2020, the German journalist Stefan Detjen on the Radio Deutschland uh, website, sorry, Deutschland Radio website, used almost exactly the same formulation as I did in his critiques of the attacks on Akhil Mbembe. In particular, he highlighted the chilling effect of Felix Klein's intervention. Klein is the federal commissioner on the fight against anti-Semitism, who led the campaign against Bembe by denouncing him as an anti-Semite who was not a fit person to be invited to a German cultural festival. By intervening in this way as a state official, Detjen argued, Klein was illegitimately restricting public speech and free debate. Detjen went so far as to proclaim that Klein's aim was the intellectual isolation of Germany, intellectuelle Abschottung Deutschlands, meaning to immunize Germany's culture of historical memory from external contamination. Adding these prescient words, I could read them out in German, but I'll, I'll read them out in English. Uh, the political reason of state thus becomes a civil religion and the anti-Semitism commissioners, its high priests. The historically founded statement about the uniqueness of the Holocaust transforms itself into a doctrinaire article of faith that is defended with state authority against heretical questioning, as if we are dealing with the intellectual property of the Federal Republic of Germany, unquote. Now, I wish I'd been able to cite this powerful passage to honor Dejin's pluck and powers of perception. But of course, as a Gen X white man with a good job like me, he could get away with saying such things. What became increasingly apparent to me in spending last summer in Germany, where well, I was responding to attacks in the press that appeared really several times a week, was that non-white Germans of so-called migration background cannot get away with saying such things. Time and again, my interlocutors told me that what I wrote spoke from their hearts, as Germans say, but they could never do so for fear of reprisals at work, especially if they worked in the university setting. These were conversations I never had in the 1990s, the late 90s, while living in Germany, when the academy was much whiter than it is today. But at that time, Holocaust memory worked to liberalize Germany, to encourage multiculturalism. Now the reverse is the case. Holocaust memory is used by powerful members of the political class to discipline migrants. It's punching down now, not up. No one denies that anti-Semitism is discernible in migrant milieus, but the statistics don't lie. The vast majority of violent anti-Semitic incidents stem from the white German milieu, whose members want migrants, Muslim migrants and Jews to leave the country. They are against both sorts of Semites. 
And we saw that in the choice of victims in Hamel. I saw too that there is an impressive body of scholarship that has been making precisely these points since I moved to work on the global history of genocide after publishing my book on German intellectuals and the Nazi past in 2007. I'm thinking of the work of Fatima El-Taib, whose Hamburg University Dr. Fatah advised her to leave the country if she wanted to work on race. She recently started a professorship at Yale after many years at UC San Diego. I also have in mind Ezra Azurek, Irit Dekel, Damani Patrid, Sultan Dugan, and many others I don't have the time to mention here. In follow-up articles and interviews I gave in the German press last year, I implored journalists to speak with them and their German-based colleagues, as well as local advocates and activists, instead of fixating on my article and my person, but to no avail. There was a bizarre obsession with the fact that an Australian historian had dared to criticize the vaunted German memory culture, even forming the basis of a television and several radio programs, in addition to the avalanche of derivative newspaper commentary. The phenomenon of the German Bildungsbürgertum then, speaking about non-white Germans, as in this slide, thus continued as before. And it's astonishingly resilient. I mean, this tweet, I think, reveals it all. Um, something that never ceases to shock me after many years abroad, that the German public television continues to host all white panels to debate racism. How is this still a thing? Well, indeed, how? Now, when pointing this out, that we try to avoid this kind of thing in the Anglosphere. The retort I received uh, from these journalists and also unfortunately some academics is that we Germans take pride in avoiding American political correctness and race politics. Now this was the intellectual isolation that Dechen was talking about and that scholars like Fatima El-Tayeb and Dugan had experienced in having to forge their careers in the US rather than in Germany where they're from. Let me be clear about what I'm saying. None of the points in my catechism essay were new. These scholars had said it all before. So why were they ignored? And my little article in a Swiss online magazine go viral? There are a few reasons, I think. The first is that this scholarship is mainly confined to the academic domain that journalists don't read. While my online article distilled the arguments in an easily digestible and accessible manner. The second is that the historians among the critics know me personally. In fact, since I was a postgraduate student in Germany 30 years ago, and are upset that I've betrayed their life project as I see it. But further, that because I'm inside the tent as a mainstream scholar, it's all, more, all the more dangerous if I propagate the heresy they perceive. Here is how my colleague Jenny Wurstenberg at Nottingham put it to me in an email last year, which I quote with her permission. So these are her words now. What I found most fascinating in the debate are not so much the historiographical justifications put forward, but the extraordinarily emotionality and compromisslosigkeit. Knowing a bunch of the protagonists, I do wonder whether the way you, she's talking about me now, put forward your arguments in quite stark terms sound to them like they are being accused of being part of a great conspiracy. But of course, what is happening is much more deeply rooted than a conspiracy and therefore more powerful. 
these arguments about the singularity of the Holocaust are genuinely felt and deeply believed in as the only dam that holds back the flood of evil coming back. People have invested a lot of life energy and political capital in this argument, and whole institutions are built on this. This makes it difficult for them to engage in this debate with an open mind without going around accusing you and others of the worst intentions. What would happen if they admit the singularity thesis doesn't work anymore and not in the same way? It's simply unfathomable. That's why Holocaust Gedenkstätten have, in, in, a, in my opinion, she says, failed to transform their political building in a way that would genuinely address contemporary racism and anti-Semitism and allow victims of communism to find a place as well. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I kind of understand why they're so angry from an emotional point of view. And of course, through their behavior, they are just confirming your catechism argument. I wonder whether showing some more strategic admiration for their life's work would make them a bit more friendly as interlocutors. End of quotation. Well, I took Jenny's advice and in follow-up articles, and there've been quite a few since the catechism piece, you can find them on my, my homepage link. Um, I've given these older male historians a reassuring hug and a pat on the back for all their good work, uh, but again, to no avail. In their view, a barbarian from down under has entered the gate and needs to be vanquished. In one respect, the attention is flattering because it's a privilege to be taken seriously as someone who's dangerous. The third reason then is my white male privilege, as I noted in my reply to critics in the new fascism syllabus in June last year. To that, I would add the following, based on the work of the Berlin-Israeli psychoanalyst Iris Hefetz, who observes that the German collective self refuses to view its ugly face in a mirror if held up by those it regards as culturally inferior. The non-whites, it is disciplining. But it will look, even not willingly, if the mirror is held up by someone who looks like me and who's based at a US university. However, that does not mean that they will listen. The psychic mechanisms are too entrenched to destabilize the cancellation reflex that I was highlighting. And that reflex was now directed to me. And this is how. In the first place, there were serial misquotations on TV and radio, as in this slide, is actually part of a radio interview which was taken down. I was misquoted as accusing Germans of nurturing a Schuldkult, a term common in the far right, although I've never used the term and in fact expressly rejected it on paper. Like I'm on the record of saying I disavow this term. On each occasion, and there were quite a few, I contacted the newspaper, the television or radio network to seek correction of the record and an apology. And these occurred immediately in the online versions accompanied by a humble notion, uh, word of regret. One newspaper, Jungle World of the anti-Germans went even further and invented an entire sentence to the effect that Israel was committing genocide in Gaza, something that I've never written. Um, it too was forced to correct the online version of the article. The Israeli sociologist Natan Schneider in an interview with an Austrian newspaper alleged that I accused the Israeli historian Charles Friedland of white privilege in my answer to him in Die Zeit, where we, we had an exchange. 
Well, I went back to look at my article to see, was there anything there to that effect? Well, sure enough, I said no such thing. Although I did express disappointment that Friedlander had accused Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement of anti-Semitism, and it expressed the fear that movements like it might come to Germany. Putting words in my mouth was a way of avoiding having to consider how symbolic power works in Germany today. The second reason, I think, or the second tactic to not have to deal with all this was just the repetition of the catechal points about the uniqueness of the Holocaust, as in this slide, a book that gathers mainly previously published art newspaper articles by the grandees of Holocaust historiography. Uh, you can see uh, with the anxiety in the titles of these newspaper, the Holocaust, a genocide just like any other. Uh, Norbert Fry now talks about a post-colonial catechism. Uh, um, or to give another example, uh, in a paper on YouTube, you can see here by this historian, the unspoken part is said out loud in which he freely admits that the Holocaust is simply more important than colonial genocides because it was closer in time and space to Germany. Time and again, time and again, uh, articles in newspapers like this have disavowed any connection between the Holocaust and colonial genocides, when in fact historians like Jürgen Zimmerer and others, including me, have only suggested there are some. The small text in Charles Friedlander's piece here in Die Zeit stands in for many. It talks about the Holocaust being völlig anders, völlig anders, completely different, and as a fundamental crime. My response, published a week later, was supposed to be entitled Fundamental Crimes, because of course the Holocaust is a fundamental crime of modernity, but so some of us are trying to suggest are colonial genocides and slavery. And this doesn't even mean equating them all, it just means uh, colonial genocides and slavery are fundamental crimes of modernity, as well as the Holocaust. Unfortunately, the site did not run my headline, but ran uh, a terrible one, I think it's here, um, that harangues uh, Friedlander, who is a great historian and now over 90 after all, in a manner I would never do. It says, with an exclamation mark, um, remember, finally remember the victims of colonial atrocities you know, as if I'm yelling at him, which I would never do. But these newspapers, even supposedly distinguished ones like the site, are uninterested in debate and are more interested in staging controversy to increase their relevance and circulation. And that's why Die Zeit published this greed that accused me, Jürgen Timmerer, and Michael Rothberg of Holocaust denial. You can see it in the, in the subtitle and later in the article of a new notion I never heard of, Holocaust, sorry, Auschwitz molestation. Again, note the contamination anxiety in the subtitle. Any suggestion of a relationship between the Holocaust and colonialism is rendered as losing the specificity of the Holocaust in the general history of Western colonial violence. Now, certainly I've never argued that, and nor has Zimmerer, uh, which brings me to the third aspect which is the refusal or inability to consider what we are actually arguing. Instead, they fixate on the notion of a second Streit or Streit 2.0 and the notion of the Holocaust uniqueness. In this rendering, I was assigned the role of a left-wing Ernst Nolte who needed to be vanquished 
as he was in the course of the 1990s, and people like him ever since. The AFD represents the threat from the right today, and I was condemned for apparently giving them ammunition. Now, why this framing took off became increasingly apparent to me in the course of 2021. We are, I want to suggest here, living in a post-revolutionary temporality after the extraordinary moral refoundation of the Republic in the late 1990s, when the country's political class and a large, but not you know, all sections of the public, decided that its collective identity lay with identification with their parents and grandparents' victims, rather than with their own grandparents or parents. This history is detailed in a number of books that show how this moral energy drove not only memorials in cities like Berlin, but also grassroots campaigns to discover the Jewish history of towns and villages that laid down Stolpersteiner before the residences in which Jews lived before deportation and murder and so forth. Whether in the university or civil society, these Germans were on the lookout now for ex-Nazis, and there were plenty of them. Think of the Schneider-Schwerter debate in 1995. And for signs of violent extra, uh, ultranationalism, like in the murderous attacks on Turkish Germans in Hoyerswerda and Mölln in the early 1990s. In this period, I'm suggesting, the country was morally and historically refounded. In the 20 years between President Richard von Weizsäcker's momentous speech on World War II and German identity in 1985, and the opening of the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin in 2005. That is why the Estoikerstreit has assumed almost mythical status, with the philosopher Jürgen Habermas assuming the role of Moses the lawgiver, with a series of commandments, among which are never relativize a Holocaust and always confront anti-Semitism. Now, notwithstanding some awkward incidents like the Jenega scandal, I thought this refoundation and set of injunctions made Germany a much better place, indeed a model for Gangenheitsbewältigung. For I was living and studying in Freiburg in the second half of the 1990s and recall these controversies well, not least because they were also, as I've mentioned, part and parcel of my PhD dissertation, which I was writing at the time. We students poured over the famous exchange between Charles Friedlander and the German historian Martin Broschart from the 80s on the historicization of National Socialism, when Friedlander insisted that the historian of Nazi Germany must centralize the Holocaust as her standpoint in surveying the secular developments that Broschart wanted to study on their own terms. In other words, the victim's perspective should predominate, and we all agreed. Now, what was an inner historiographical debate became generalized to society as a whole by the outcome of the Estoikerstreit, seen over a 20-year perspective. During this period, a string of other debates and scandals about the Nazi past consumed the public sphere that quite quickly changed the memory regime of the Berlin Republic. I'm talking about in the mid-late 1990s now, the Goldhagen debate, the Walser Bubis debate, the Wehrmachtsausstellung, and of course, the protracted discussion about a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin. This moral revolution produced a dominant German subjectivity, which, which then constituted by these five articles of the catechism I mentioned. Shocked by the Holocaust in which their parents and grandparents were implicated, some Germans supplanted the national orientation 
of most Germans by, as I've said, identifying with their Jewish victims rather than with their own families who'd suffered from Allied bombing or been expelled from East Central Europe after the war. I called this new German subjectivity non-German German. These were non-German Germans. After the clever formulation of Isaac Deutscher, uh, the non-Jewish Jew, this was a universalist rather than a nationally oriented German. And this subjectivity was embodied by Jung Habermas, who of course is a 45er, as I call them, born in 1929, but was generalized by the 68er generation in confrontations with their parents and the West German state from the 1960s onwards. This victim identification extended to Israel significantly as the land of the survivors and a sanctuary for future refugees, as Germans view it. Now, such unconditional identification entails blindness to the nature of Israeli rule over Palestinians in Israel and the occupied territories. Reports by Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights groups documenting systematic human rights abuses and the international crimes of apartheid and persecution are thus either ignored or denounced as anti-Semitic. And in practice, that means disciplining public speech about Israel and Palestine, admonishing non-Zionist Jews, and even Jews who think of themselves as Zionists, but who are critical of Israeli policies. Whereas the Zionist frame of exilic trauma and the consequent Israeli law of return are honored, non-Zionist ones are delegitimized, including the Palestinian claimed right of return. And because the Palestinian right to self-determination is thought to contradict the Jewish one, German commentators routinely call it anti-Semitic. This loyalty indicates that Israel and Germany constitute a single emotional political space, irrespective of distinct sovereignties, legal orders, and values. An intense mutual identification is evidence for this proposition. The journalist Claudius Seidel encapsulated the relationship in writing, quote, and I quote him in English now, although it's originally in German. In any case, as a German, you live in a common space of history and memory with the descendants of the victims and survivors. That's why Felix Klein, the federal commissioner uh, for uh, Jewish life in Germany in the fight against anti-Semitism, declared in, on TV here, this is just a little clip from it, that uh, the youth with migration background can attest to their integration by accepting Germany's guarantee of Israel's right to exist as the country's Staatsraison. And in also, he continued, in adopting Israel's self-understanding of its foundation, I quote him, there needs to be an increased education about the foundation of the state of Israel, about the special relationship that Germany has to Israel, and also perhaps that one can make it clear to them that it makes a good impression if they follow this as a sign of the willingness to integrate. Now, this means nothing less than requiring of Palestinians in Germany that they deny that an injustice was committed in their mass expulsion, their dispossession, and the blocking of their return, indeed in their continued statelessness. The historian Osama Makdizi is thus quite right to observe that Germany's Staatsraison in guaranteeing the security of Israel on these terms effectively, effectively means guaranteeing the oppression of Palestinians, whether in Palestine, Israel, or even in Germany. That's why today many of us look aghast upon what has become of the admirable German memory culture. In her book, Civil Society and Memory in Postwar Germany from 2007, Jenny Wüstenberg wrote, and I quote her now, by the 1990s and 2000s, the normative regime of remembrance had become largely, largely representative. 
by representative I mean that a particular set of mnemonic values were evident in the practice of official memory institutions. This was a victory for the many civic initiatives that had fought for a critical reckoning of the Nazi past. However, their success also led to a decline in the power of mnemonic civil society and a concomitant decline in its critical potential. Moreover, despite the strong civic and state support now enjoyed by Holocaust-centered memory regimes, or memory regime, it has been challenged by new civic memory claims with implications for the evolving norm of public remembrance. The question now is whether the existing institutions, actors, and norms that constitute German memorial culture will allow a new generation of memory activists to shape a portion of public space without prescribing rules of remembrance that have congealed in the course of earlier struggles." End of quotation. Well, that is indeed the question. And I would repeat the point that what is now, what was once discursively empowering multiculturalism is now directed against migrants and refugees from the Middle East, at least in the hands of officialdom and much of the press. And those who support them are hounded on social media. That is those who support the migrants and refugees. The most recent example of the roadkill left in the wake of this anti-anti-Semitism road train is of course, the German Palestinian journalist and doctor, Nemi Al-Hassan, who was squeezed out of her role as a science show television presenter for a major network because she had liked some supposedly controversial Instagram posts by the American organization, Jewish Voices for Peace. Here are some unsympathetic representations uh, that you found online uh, and in the media that were used to discredit her. And how did this work? The Deutschlandfunk radio journalist Sebastian Engelbrecht expressed the official view in defending her sacking in the following terms, and I quote him, it has to be made clear to her that in Germany, she has to compromise her right to be just who she is in the framework of diversity, so to speak. If she is the presenter of a public service broadcaster, then she cannot simply say, I am who I am, but must submit, submit, to this social consensus that ultimately led to what we call the basic law, unquote. Consequently, he continued, she needed to remember that, quote, we live in Germany and not in Palestine. Now, although Engelbrecht was firmly contradicted by two colleagues, one of whom was in fact Stefan Detjen, who, who accused him of setting political orthodoxy tests, Engelbrecht's view prevailed at VDR at the network and in German politics, and El Hassan was banished. That is the effect of the German catechism today. Now, I could say much more about this case, but we don't have the time and I've written about it for anyone who cares to follow up. And you can see on this slide, that's the, where, where the article appeared. Now, the El Hassan case and also that of Farah Maraka right now, who was spuriously dismissed uh, from Deutsche Welle, is a textbook example of the problem that led me to write the article about how German public culture demands adherence to very specific articles of faith enforced by public authority and a public opinion or public newspapers at least, or newspapers in the public sphere. And it is being primarily directed towards people of color by descendants of the perpetrator generation who in trying to master the past are in my view, inadvertently reproducing the authoritarian culture they seek to liberalize. This is a cultural phenomenon I call the dialectic of Vergangenheitsbewältigung, 
in an article uh, last year. This was my response to critics and commentaries in the English language debate on the new fascism syllabus. Now, and so far, no one in Germany or elsewhere has really addressed this point, the, the dialectical nature of this relationship. They write as if all was well on the good ship Germany until I came along with a nasty polemic and upset the apple cart. That this is a self-serving fable should be apparent to anyone by now. But I believe, I believe we need to do more than simply observe its pernicious effects. We need to appreciate that this is a manifestation of a post-revolutionary temporality in which the new dispensation is being institutionalized in new conditions, new compared to say 22 years ago. In a Germany that's far more diverse than it was even in 2005. Now, some 26% or so of the population are of so-called migration background. Well, that means when at least one parent did not acquire German citizenship by birth. The fact that many of the migrants are Muslims became a matter of increasing public policy attention after 9-11, and especially with the entry of nearly a million Syrian refugees in 2015. Now, although Muslims comprise only around 6.5% of the population, the concern is now about imported anti-Semitism. And the rise of the AFD has similarly alarmed the political class. So far, the signs are not good that it has the cultural resources to address this challenge. But I welcome hearing from the audience about their views on the matter. I'll, um, I'll stop there. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Dirk, uh, for this uh, uh, overview of, uh, of the whole discourse. Um, I'm waiting for more questions. I, I might uh, ask a first question myself. Um, First of all, in Austria, it was still a disturbing fact in the last few years. There's a lot of there was a lot of migrant uh, hate crime against uh, Jewish communities, uh, particularly in the tenth district of Vienna. So there is obviously there is a problem. And and secondly, um, I was wondering uh, in your article the uh, Deutsche Katechismus, and I can see why it was. Uh, received with, with so much anger because, you know, exposing the, the pseudo-religious side of it and basically showing the religious, the Christian religious narrative behind it, the articles of faith was probably too much for some. Uh, I really liked it because, you know, in a way, like a, a good person in cultural studies, you basically sketch the narrative uh, in a provoking, thought-provoking way. I was wondering why you did not... Uh, call up uh, basically the one of the, the best crown witnesses, namely uh, Hannah Arendt here in, in your first article, who basically made this connection uh, between uh, colonial crime and the Holocaust uh, in the case of the Nama, um, of the Nama uh, genocide in the early 1900s uh, carried out by uh, German troops and their auxiliaries um, in uh, Southwest Africa, which is Namibia nowadays. Um, why did you, didn't you uh, kind of uh, reflect more on Hannah Arendt? Okay. Are you saying uh, that she would be cancelled nowadays? Probably? Yeah. Yeah, but what, what Susan Nyman was referring to was her, was a petition she signed with many other, uh, uh, you know, emigre Jewish scholars, some, some in New York by Sidney Hook and so forth, I think in, in 1949, about the outcome of the, the war in Palestine. Uh, in which I think they even use the word fascism. And 
uh, may have been 1947, but it's a it's a quite a famous uh, text. I think it was a public an open letter in the New York Times. And Nyman's point was that if she said those, if someone said those things today, even an Arendt, uh, these would these would not be accepted in Germany today. So there's uh, you know even even crown witnesses, as you say, uh, in in the Jewish intelligentsia uh, uh, would be would be uh, rendered illegitimate and find no place in Germany. And that would be an indictment of the German discussion culture. Okay, but you're referring to Arendt's other work on in the origins of totalitarianism, where she she uh, has a theory about the relationship between empire and uh, and the Holocaust. Well, I've written quite a bit about that. It, it appears in my book and it's, I've written a couple of articles on it as well. If you take a closer look, the her argument is is less attractive and more apologetic than than people suppose. She makes a distinction between imperialism and empire. Arendt is in favor of empire building. Mm. And like the British Empire, like the French Empire, and she certainly trivialized their crimes in the in the origins of totalitarianism. She was against the what she called limitless imperialism, an idea she took from Luxembourg uh, from the late 19th century onwards, uh, which she which she says then morphs into a, a uh, uh, totalitarianism. Uh, but uh, she distinguishes, in fact, British and French empire building and these blue water empires from pan-Germanism and the idea of a of a German empire in Europe. So she actually doesn't draw much of a of a link between what happened in Africa and what happened in in East Central Europe. Uh, uh, the 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 harder line thinkers there were 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 people like Fanon and Césaire. And uh, you know she was not an anti-colonial thinker like they were. She was a she was very much an apologist for empires, the Western empires. Uh -huh. Yeah, thanks. We have a few uh, comments and questions already. Please shower us with more. That's why we're here. We have uh, roughly uh, twenty or thirty minutes uh, for for thorough discussion. Um, so the first question is by Caroline Morrissey. Do you think this atmosphere? is replicated in Holocaust memory cultures in other European countries, especially in, in Western Europe. So, I mean, obviously the atmosphere you sketched about uh, Germany. Well, you know, there's quite a lot of, there's a lot of countries in Western Europe. So I, I, I couldn't tell you what's happening in Belgium and the Netherlands, in Luxembourg, in France, in Britain, which of course has its own constituent parts in, uh, in both parts of Ireland, um, in, you know, in Italy, in Portugal, in Spain, in Greece, the Balkans. But we did do a, a special issue on the Journal of Genocide Research, which I edit on, on public memory about these questions, which you'll find on our website. And a, a fair few countries uh, in, in Europe, but mainly East Central Europe, come up. Uh, there's certainly a big distinction between uh, Eastern and Western Europe on these matters. So... I know the I know the situation in Britain uh, more than the others, uh, for various reasons, and there are some there are some similarities there. The the issue you know is about the the uh, IRA definition of anti-Semitism and to the extent which it's going to be institutionalized in places like universities, and then how academics get treated accordingly. But the I do think it's at another level in Germany. I, it's it's hard to see how the fate of Vanemi al-Hassan would be replicated in, in um, the British media landscape, which is far more diverse, yeah, not with, not with, notwithstanding its own, its own limits. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's a rosy picture in the UK, 
it's just less unrosy. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Dirk. Uh, we have an <clears throat> sorry, an anonymous listener asking, considering the AfD often uses the expression, das wird man ja wohl noch sagen dürfen. Yeah? Um, you probably find a good uh, English expression for this, Dirk. Uh, and pushes the border of the Sagbahn, of the things you can say. Would you say that this catechism actually uh, contributes to the success of the AfD? So obviously, ex negative or as a kind of yeah, yeah. backdrop is meant. I uh, obviously I, I would say. Yeah, uh, I hardly think that the AfD uh, have ever heard of me, care about me, and uh, need anything I say to in, in, encourage their uh, encourage their campaign. Okay, I mean this is a this is a kind of red herring question that I get all the time. Um, in, it, it turns out there was one uh, far right thinker, identitarian thinker, as I call him. Forget his name, but he wrote in an Austrian. He's Austrian. and wrote in a, in a journal there. Uh, uh, an article. Sleeper. Yeah, that's him. An article about uh, you know about my piece, um, in which he um, he he thought some of it was interesting, but then concluded that the problem with with it is that Moses is pro-migrant, whereas we're anti-migrant. Mm -hmm. And so what you know, this was constantly mentioned by uh, by various people that aha. Moses is uh, is uh, getting getting applause from the wrong side, which is always a uh, a torchlight argument in Germany. But what what's interesting is this one, you know, there are millions of uh, far right not jobs out there, and just one. Uh, so I think I think they realise that I'm not an ally. In fact, they're the enemy. And uh, what I perceive is actually a a a consensus from the AfD to the center left in Germany on questions of migrants. That is, they're all suspicious of Muslim migrants uh, in, to, in varying degrees. And, uh, and, and in their pro-Israel, unquestioning pro-Israel policy. I mean, the AFD has, you know, has very ambivalent views on Jews, obviously, but you know, the question of Israel is another question. It's a country they admire, uh, at least, you know, um, it's hard to know whether authentically or for propagandistic reasons, as an ethno-national state that keeps out Muslims and regulates its, its population through, uh, through uh, migration restriction. And this is, a, this is something that we should emulate in Germany. So I think that's the question. Uh, the consensus in Germany, uh, which is um, Islamophobic and, um, and which links the center-left to the AFD. So, one, so far, no one's really come up with an answer on that one. Yeah, I have another question by Ferenc Lacho. Uh, you mentioned that critical studies of race are uh, not welcome in German academia today. Could you say more about this issue? How can a public culture focused on past racist crimes uh, be so resistant to such theories, I wonder? Says yeah, no, that, that, nice to hear from you, Ferenc. And uh, that's a terrific question. And of course, it goes to, the, to one of the catechism articles uh, Articles, I think it's three or four, where anti-Semitism and racism are strictly distinguished. Uh, it's an issue I should have really gone into, but we just don't have time. So I'm glad I can get into it now. So uh, as many people know, uh, anti-Semitism is is forensically distinguished from racism in in the German debate. Now, obviously, the modal I think these are all forms of racism. Uh, racism against Jews, we call anti-Semitism has a particular modality and is, and is distinct in various ways from say, racism against um, some Asians. Of course, anti-Asian racism needs to be disaggregated as well uh, and racism against Africans. Uh, now, 
there are a number of problems with this distinction. The one is the, the, the fixation on anti-Semitism, uh, which supposedly has been taken care of by the, the terms of the German memory culture, means that, uh, and, and, and also understanding Nazism as being driven only really by anti-Semitism, means that all the racism against Sinti and Roma, against uh, Afri Africans and against all, other, all kinds of other people, uh, which was elemental to the Nazi regime and to German culture and indeed European culture and Australian culture in the, mid, in the middle decades of the 20th century is, is glossed over and continues in mainstream culture in Germany today. So you can see that by, by fixating just on anti-Semitism, which you know, an anti-Semitism obviously should be highlighted there in the way we discuss these things, but by fixating on it alone, you allow the continuity in an uncritical way of the, of the uh, other racisms that animate German and European culture and, you know, where I come from in Australia as well. Though, you know, we got rid of the white Australia policy in the early 1970s. In, uh, in, uh, we've been dealing with, a, you know, trying to fix that problem ever since. Now, the, there was another element to this issue, but I've, I've, forgotten, I've forgotten what it is right now. I'll try, to, I'll try to come back to it at some point. But the, if we, you know, the, well, the point that many of us are making is that if you, oh, oh this is it, if you, if you understand the problem as racism more generally, and that there are different kinds of racism, there's racism against Jews that has its specificities, obviously, shouldn't be denied, uh, and racism against other kinds of migrants, then, then we can start to, to see uh, the problems that animate uh, German and European culture, for example, in the way it, it clamps down on certain kinds of migrants, except some and not others, and refugees. Let me say something briefly about this that's very troubling about this distinction that's consistently made. It's always assumed that there's something called racism against brown people and black people and yellow people, right? And anti-Semitism, on the other hand, as if racism is just one thing, as if there isn't a distinction between uh, racism against Africans, against different kinds of Asians. I mean, North Asians are racialized in a different way from people from Bangladesh, for example. Um, and uh, I see this in America as well, incidentally. Um, and that are racialized in different ways for people from Latin America. So, I mean, it's in a way, it, it's an extraordinarily racist thing to say, to lump all these people uh, with different racialization experiences into one category as the merely exploitable, whereas uh, Jews, victims of anti-Semitism were exterminatable. Um, it also, it also uh, disavows the fact that there was all kinds of genocidal energy directed towards uh, people from these parts of the world as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sebastian Druskolaski, University of Manchester, a cordial welcome. He used to be our colleague at Trinity. Uh, he is asking, would you care to share your views on how the German situation compares to the Austrian one? Uh, that's a terrific question. I wish I knew, I knew more about the Austrian situation. I mean, Clemens just mentioned the, these troubling statistics. I, I, I don't know those. So, so I, I, I better not venture um, semi-informed uh, conclusions, but I'm planning to spend some time in Vienna uh, this summer and later this year, and we'll, we'll get, try to get on top of the issue. Okay. So also an old acquaintance, old friend, Nina Parlovitsova from uh, 
University of Alberta, Edmonton, uh, there is a wave of veneration of the righteous rescuers in some post-communist countries. I was wondering how you could situate this celebration uh, of the righteous rescuers in which Israel is pol politically invested with what is happening in Germany in the area of uh, public memory of the Holocaust and its approach to critical race studies. Wow, there's a lot going on in that question. I'm not sure where, where that one, how to thread that one together. If, if there can be sort of some elaborate elaboration, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, it also well, presumes I'm an expert what's happening in those Eastern European cases you mentioned. Yeah, well, uh, it would be interesting, by the way, to open the case up uh, to Eastern Europe, where there is uh, my, uh, since we talk about University of Alberta, where my colleague uh, Karen Ball uh, is still teaching, mm. she used the ugly word of comparative suffering, uh, which is always a danger in genocide studies. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's called uh, the Lilique in one of the articles uh, accusing you. Um, and, uh, well, there's always, of course, the problem of, uh, of uh, the commemoration of the crimes of communism versus the Holocaust. Oh, right. There always was a juxtaposition. But uh, Nina is asking uh, how the veneration of the righteous rescuers uh, in some post-communist uh, communist countries uh, relates to uh, the catechism. Or is there a different catechism? Or that's right. how I understand the question. Okay. So I presume Nina is referring to uh, Gentile rescues of Jews are righteous among the righteous among the nations, right? Okay. Well, I, I think I think that's uh, well. Uh, let me. I know a little about the Polish case, partly because I the special issue of the journal on these issues that I co-edited was with a Polish college a colleague, Cornelia Konjar, who's uh, Constantin and Bielefeld, and is herself Polish. Um, I mean, we know that the Polish government has been extremely sensitive to accusations that you know, the Polish people, Polish national movement was indifferent to the fate of Polish Jews uh, and, in, and even collaborated with the Germans uh, during the Second World War. And, and I've, seen this, I've seen this even in Australia where when, when um, Jan Gross toured the country a few years ago, um, there were you know, demonstrations by Polish Australians who accused him of you know, all kinds of terrible things. And the Polish ambassador insisted on giving a, a speech at the uh, an impromptu speech after his paper, in which he pointed out that you know proportionally there are more rescuers of Jews in Poland than any other country. So in that sense, the the, the 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 stigma that he felt was being attached to Poland was illegitimate. So I'm conjecturing here somewhat, but I think that the the celebration of these uh, people, which intuit, you know intrinsically is not wrong, okay. Uh, on the contrary, they they risk their lives for the right cause. Um, you know, is it can easily be instrumentalized for state purposes in in uh, in, in in combating the the proposition that their national movements were tainted by collaboration with the Nazis. Uh, so that that's how I'd answer it. Now, whether it's you know how it relates to the catechism issue in Germany, I don't know. Uh, I don't think there's much of a relationship. I've actually got a chapter on on these issues, comparing East and West European Holocaust and communist, the memorialization of Holocaust and communist crimes coming out in a book later this year. I wrote it three or four years ago, so it's taken a long time to come out. Yeah, well, there seems to be a Polish catechism, if, if, if you want to call it as such. Sure. Uh, 
with uh, the outlawing of the claim that there were basically a Polish anti-Semitic Polish people yeah. co- collaborating or in another way uh, kind of assisting the Holocaust or or basically um, denouncing Jews to 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 the German occupier and so forth. Yeah. There's another uh, there's another question um, uh, which expresses the kind of the fear. That changing the catechism in the long term might bring it, uh, uh, well, not the fear, the hope that changing the catechism in the long uh, term might bring a decrease in IFT support. So if if the if the narrative gets less religious, pseudo-religious, less mm-hmm. dogmatic, um, uh, there's the hope. Uh, adding to the IFT question doesn't need to be asked. I meant that there might be a lot of people who disagree with this catechism, want to have a different memory culture and tend toward IFD for that reason, while not approving of their content in general. Uh, so that's why uh, yeah. this uh, uh, listener says uh, that uh, uh, changing the catechism might, um, yeah. might change uh, or might lead to a decrease in AFD support. Uh, yeah. I've heard the opposite argument as well. Yeah. Look, you know, I don't think AFD support is driven by memory culture. You know, it's driven by a whole set of grievances about the way unification in Germany played out, the economic collapse of the country and so forth after after unification. Uh, there's no doubt, however, also that those, those that are uh, enthralled to nationalist modes of identification will always feel triggered by Holocaust memory. Um, now, I'm in favour of a robust Holocaust memory. Let me put that on the record. And um, the, prob- the problem is not Holocaust memory. The problem is nationalist modes of identification. Okay. So I think it's soci- you know, an anthropological or sociological, sociologically uh, informed answer would ask this question. Why, why do people find succor or consolation and nationalist modes of identification? Uh, what is it about their life worlds that make this an attractive form, an anti-cosmopolitan uh, form? And now Germany is not the only place where this is going on. Okay, we have to ask broader questions about the way globalization and capitalism and the welfare state uh, are functioning in, or not functioning in those parts of Germany. Okay, so it's not just a cultural question; it's also a material question. Okay. I think what Jenny Wustenberg was getting at in her book, in that, in that quotation I read out of hers, was that the, the, mem- the memory culture and its pedagogical modality, you know, in the Gedenkstätten, you know, where, where school children are taken to concentration camps and sort of asked to identify with this and that and, uh, and, and learn, you know, lessons, lessons about the past is, is not working. And uh, there, are two, there are two addressees here. One of the what about the the crimes of communism? It, this needs to be handled carefully because clearly the East Germany did not commit a Holocaust. Okay, and so that's the problem with the theory of totalitarianism is somehow it flattens all that out, right? But it needs to be addressed somehow, and and then also the the experiences of of uh, migrants. Okay, now especially from the Middle East. Now there's a there's there's an excellent developing ethnographical research on these. On these tours, these school these school children trips to these camps by uh, Ezra Elzurik, Sultan Dugan, and others who go and then accompany these these trips and uh, interview these school children about their experiences and uh, and the answers aren't necessarily the ones that the 
the the guides and the school teachers want. You know, they want they want the children to identify with the as perpetrators, if you like, with the perpetrator collective, the Germans, in order to to evoke the the non-German German emotions uh, as a marker of their uh, assimilation into German culture. But what what the evidence that um, they adduce suggests is that the the school kids. I mean, we're talking about. 15, 16 year olds, and they're quite young, are identifying with Jews and saying, oh, this could be us next. You know, the, the, the racism that led to this, to the persecution and murder of these Jews could be directed to us, which is not the identification that the, the guides want. So something needs to, something needs to change there. And, you know, I've, I've been trying to point that out, but the, you know, as that other quotation in the letter that, that Jenny sent me points out is that you know there's a, a generation's worth of investment in these in this cultural infrastructure and in the message that they're that they're uh, conveying and uh, uh, it's it's difficult for uh, for them to accept that maybe they need to make some changes let me say again you know the holocaust always needs to be a central part of this message i mean these camps after all exist because germans built them to lock up political and you know racial opponents uh, and that will be the prime message but you know, what, what if in these camps, um, you know, in terms of historical background, there was also a story about the history of European empires, German empires, and uh, discrimination against and, and, and mass murder of Africans as a, as a precedent. It's not equating things. It's showing how the flow of history develops, you know. But that apparently you can't do that because, um, um, you know, in this sort of anxiety, contamination anxiety, one's allegedly throwing everything into one pot and uh, you know, losing the specificity of the Holocaust. You know, that's not what we're arguing. Uh, we're arguing for a relational, uh, if you like, intersectional or multi-directional mode of history and memory. Um, but you know, my point about critics not being able to listen is this, they, they don't hear what we're saying. What, what they hear is that, oh my God, we're going to uh, forget that the Holocaust had distinct aspects and um, go back to say, you know, in the 1950s, where the before the Eichmann trial, be you know when when uh, Jews and Jewish suffering were relatively ignored, and no one's arguing that. Yes, I I, uh, I have two more questions, but very briefly. I mean, this leads us to, I would say, to a culture of transgression. That uh, I mean, in terms of um, of cultural economy, you could claim that this strong catechism invites, of course, transgression. I mean, because uh, in its dogmatic structure, uh, and I was I was thinking of, uh, for example, teenagers taking selfies at Auschwitz, and uh, I, I I used to discuss with my students, uh, I forgot his name, the Israeli artist who did this Holocaust project, where he basically, which is based uh, on, on selfies taken by visitors uh, to the mm. camp and uh, having this kind of Spaßkultur yeah. in the yeah. camp. Um, yeah. Is this is related? Is uh, and I guess uh, uh, that's in a similar vein as as the last question. I mean, if we have this very dogmatic uh, pseudo religious discourse, it invites, particularly from young people, a sort of transgression to show that you're cool or that you're basically yeah. stand above it. Uh, and this leads to very thoughtless and and actually very. Uh, or, for example, the skaters in the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin and all these kind of mm. give you a whole list of of transgressions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is well, yeah. like playing a practical joke on your teacher yeah, by taking yeah. a, uh, yeah, a yeah. In, in, in Auschwitz. Well, this is always a risk when you take teenagers anywhere, okay? 
uh, there, there are always going to be some misbehave. So, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking teenagers to the Holocaust memorial. We obviously should, right? Uh, and there's also an excellent, um, you know, educational facility underneath it, you know, which uh, which would put things in context. Otherwise, it's a rather abstract. You know, it can be seen as a playground, right? So, look, when you when you when you read the accounts of uh, people of you know migration background, uh, like Salson Shebli, the 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 social democratic politician in Berlin, who's um, who's born, I think she's born in Germany, but her parents are Palestinian refugees via Lebanon. Uh, you know, she says as a somewhere that as a teenager she really wasn't switched on to these things either. I mean, I don't know if she, I don't think she uh, made silly jokes and 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 engaged in horseplay at the at the Holocaust memorial. But you know, you you just weren't properly sentient when you're younger. But later, as a university student or at some point, you know, the penny dropped, and you know, she's uh, you know a very emphatic proponent of Holocaust memory and taking. Uh, school children to Auschwitz. In fact, she said it should be compulsory, or at least to some concentration camps, it should be compulsory. And that led to an intense debate a few years ago in Germany. So people need time. Uh, uh, and the, you know, I don't know, uh, I haven't done the research on whether the, the dogmatic terms of the debate elicit, you know, elicit uh, responses in, in terms of defiance and uh, truculence. Intuitively, I think they probably do, but that's um, you know this is something that needs to be sorted out very much at the local level with proper preparation, mentoring, and so forth. Um, and it, it's not directly related to the experiences of someone like Nemi Al Hassan. Okay, um, so okay, we have two more questions by my dear colleague Mary Cosgrove. Uh, what is your assessment of where the field of uh, genocide research and comparative genocide research is in light of this controversy. It was an emerging field uh, approximately 20 years ago. Germany, it seems, is lagging behind, not in its literary works, though the best ones uh, really take apart the catechisms. That's what she's saying. So I missed that last part. The, the best ones are... Uh, so basically, she's saying that um, why is basically... German lagging behind in comparative genocide research, right. while German literature is very proactively taking these um, uh, topics on board and basically mm. um, also kind of, uh, what Mary writes, uh, right. the, the best ones really take apart the catechism. Okay. Oh, well, that's a terrific question. Well, Mary will know more about the literature than I do. But, I, you know, that Maxim Billard article I mentioned before, which accuses us of Holocaust denial and Holocaust, uh, Auschwitz molestation, right, it goes after an Afro-German uh, literary you know, uh, author for, for not rendering, Auschwitz, in one of her works, not rendering Auschwitz in the way that uh, he would have liked. So, you know, the there, there is a, there, there is obviously pluralism, right? That was the premise always was that there is pluralism in the German public sphere, which people misunderstood in my argument, but that there are people attempting to control it, okay, uh, and as as um, to main to maintain orthodoxy against heresy. Uh, I'm glad to hear that there's lots of heresy among among authors, right? Maybe it's because this because their their work literary works are more distant from the from public impact in the public sphere. You know, less immediately political that they're they're insulated from from this sort of scrutiny, uh, whereas the historians, you know, often write in the newspapers about targets politique uh, 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 are not are not so insulated. 
But why is Germany lagging behind? Well, look, there are lots of terrific German historians, and there are some like Jürgen Zimmerer, who, who edited the Journal of Genocide Research before I did. He was the preceding editor. But he's also somewhat isolated. I know, I won't, I won't tell you the historian that he was in conversation with, but he's one of my, my main critics and his main critics, you know, who, who off the record will say, well, obviously, you know, we should have historians working in Rwanda and, and all these other cases. Uh, but, you know, Germany should, not, he continues, this is now not Jürgen Zimmerer, but the older senior historian, uh, says Germany really shouldn't be the leader in this field because uh, it looks like we're relativizing the Holocaust. We should just really focus on the Holocaust. That's our thing. Happens to be also his thing. So, uh, you know, it, the outcome of that is that, you know, I mean, given what a powerhouse as, a, as an aggregate, the German Academy could be internationally, it's punching under its weight when it comes to African history. I mean, how many, there are excellent historians of Africa and Germany, but how many Lehrstühle are there? It could be a lot more. I mean, a lot of this is seen as an Orchideenbach uh, mm-hmm. by rectors and the ministerian, uh, you know, when a good proportion of humanity is living in Africa. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not as if the only th- story to tell about Africa, of course, is genocide. <laughs> a lot of, there are other stories to tell. But, but uh, the political risks for people working on comparative genocide in Germany in terms of, you know, career advancement are too, are too high. So people... People tend to play it safe, or they go overseas. There are lots of great German graduate students uh, in the US, uh, in Ireland, in Ireland maybe, uh, and in the UK. Um, Attest a to the to the um, the push factor out of the academy. Yeah. So I have two more questions. Uh, Uma Kumar is asking: Do you think that the memory culture isn't working because the Germans looked at it only publicly? but not privately. They haven't really explored what their grandparents or great-grandparents actually did or did not during the Third Reich. Well, this reminds me of uh, Opa Waka Nazi, what Harald uh, uh, did uh, as a book. Uh, what would you say uh, to this question? Well, it depends on, on whether you're talking about non-German Germans or you know the nationalist German Germans, okay? So it seems to me that non-German Germans uh, are all too well aware of what their grandparents did uh, and uh, feel ashamed and shocked by it. And so they're trying to create a new culture, okay? Whereas the, the phenomenon of what Werther calls cumulative heroisierung uh, is something that, you know, if you like regular Germans, uh, what I call German German, somewhat clumsily in, in that book, uh, engaging, okay? so. Uh, you know, this kind of nostalgia isn't limited to Germany, of course. I mean, you think of the empire nostalgia in the UK right now. That's not to equate the crimes of the British Empire with the Holocaust, but there's plenty to be problem to be troubled by in British history, and that includes Australian history. And uh, you know, few people are willing to engage in the introspection there. It would be good if there was more introspection. I mean, what we liked about the German memory culture in the late 90s and the early 2000s was this was this exacting culture of introspection and questioning of grandparents and so forth. Right? The problem is not that. The problem is what's happened in the last 20 years. Uh, that's often been misunderstood. You know, People read my articles and attack on all the good work that was done in the 80s and the 90s. No, no. The attack is what's happened in the last 20 years since it was become state policy. And you have people like Felix Klein running around um, telling African intellectuals to bugger off. You know to put it in a very Anglo-Australian way, Irish-Australian way. 
So Sanya Seth uh, is asking, that's the last question. I wonder if the extraordinary Eurocentrism of German intellectual life helps to create the conditions for regarding the Holocaust as absolutely singular and incomparable. Germany is hardly alone in being Eurocentric, but it is at least contested in the US and the UK. In Germany, even someone like Habermas insists that the history of reason is a European history. And I, if I may add something, it, it, it struck me uh, in his response, uh, the weakness of Habermas articles uh, was clearly when it came to migrants. Uh, and I said, well, I, he has overslept the last 20 years. Uh, he, 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 he does not realize what kind of society uh, Germany has become. Uh, and of course you cannot blame him for being old, but obviously uh, he has not uh, kind of the goggles for it or kind mm. of the, the perceptions for it. Yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks for that question, Sanjay. I really appreciate it. Sanjay's chiming in from Goldsmith College in London um, this afternoon. So, uh, you know, this, this Eurocentrism you talked about is prized in, in, in the German mainstream. Uh, I mentioned that in my introduction. It, it's seen as, look, let me put it this way. In the liberal and now also conservative interpretation of the German coming to terms of the past, its success resides in or inheres in Germany's return to the West. You know, and in emigre intellectuals like Fritz Stern and others were elemental in this, you know, liberal re-liberalization of uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, between West Germany before the before unification. Now, that project largely succeeded. You know, Germany is like a stalwart of NATO uh, and uh, a firm member of the Atlantic Alliance, culturally as well as geopolitically. And again, now that it's going to you know, devote so much money to rearmament. Uh, the thing is, though, um, that, that worked well until the, seemingly well, until the late 1990s, when Germany was still a really white place compared to what it is now. I mean, there was always been a fair bit of migration then. But it, it really has become a much more diverse place in the last 20 years. And that answer uh, now entails all the critiques of Western civilization that, you know, post-colonial studies and critical race theory are, are associated with. And so the, the timing is interesting. Just as this cultural revolution has succeeded by the early 2000s, then you get a, 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 a rapid diversification of the population that's that's intensified with the intake of the Syrian refugees in 2015. And then in reaction, partial reaction to that, the rise of the far right, which, which uh, alarms the political class, if you like, from both sides. Okay. And in, instead, of, instead of engaging in a, uh, a searching uh, analysis of the, of the West and Germany's part of it, they've actually doubled down, you know, in the Humboldt Forum, uh, which is, you know, uh, apparently a non-imperialist celebration of the Enlightenment and uh, Germany's version of it, um, and in other, in other manifestations of German cultural policy, you get, you get a, a, a re-intensification of uh, this Western ideology. Now, you know, a facile anti-Westernism is, is not the answer, but I don't hear anyone advocating for that either, okay? So... Um, in, in one of the critiques of my pieces, by, I think by Thomas Schmidt, he said, aha, Moses and people like that, it, he was always obsessed with Israel, although I, I actually hardly mention it in my work. They want to, they want to undo you know, all the, the, the achievements of Western civilization, and it would mean the end of Israel. 
And I go, actually, if you look at the national liberation movements uh, of the moment of decolonization after the Second World War, they all wanted a nation, a republican nation state like you, what Europeans have. We want one too. We want human rights and equal rights to develop and so forth. And that's always what the Palestinians have wanted. So why not, why not give them equal human rights? And, and uh, he never has an answer to that. Actually, uh, the best version of the West would be good. Well, I guess it's a powerful last uh, sentence. Uh, Dirk, thank you so much for coming. I think we're closing on time right now. Uh, thanks to the audience for the lively discussion uh, and uh, for your academic decency. Uh, well, I probably, Dirk, you have seen other discussions uh, in the last few months. Um, so please give Dirk the hands uh, for coming to us virtually. Hopefully you can come uh, in person to, once, to us once uh, there's the Trinity uh, a Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Centers, uh, Center that uh, gives, for example, visiting research fellowships. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity to come to Dublin and Trinity College. Uh, cordial thanks to Dirk, cordial thanks to all of you and uh, goodbye, I think. Uh, with Zoom, you cannot give him the hands, just uh, but uh, in a way. I see uh, the thank yous in the chat. Everybody's being very gracious. Thank you very much. It was delightful to, to uh, uh, discuss these issues with you today. Thanks a lot, Dirk. And uh, okay. thanks, everybody. Have a the good day. The Hub is a community. Bye. Manuscript, Bye. book, and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the time of the year library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.